All right, so uh, my clock has just ticked over to the top of the hour, so uh, we're going to get started on the call. Uh, first off, I'd just like to welcome everybody and, and thank you for joining us for the third in a series of local economies calls with Community Matters that is uh, made possible by the folks at the Orton Family Foundation. So uh, thanks very much to those guys. Uh, we're talking today about fostering entrepreneurship. And this afternoon, we're joined by Mickey Langston, who's the Executive Director of the Mile High Business Alliance. Mickey brings a really interesting perspective um, to the call today from her work based in Denver, where the Mile High Business Alliance is nurturing local businesses and entrepreneurs. And our second speaker today is Shana Ratner, uh, who's the Principal of Yellowwood Associates. And Shana's been working with the Ford Foundation on projects around wealth creation in rural communities. So she's got a wealth of experience and research to, to speak from. Before we dive into the call, I just want to give a quick overview um, and explain some of the protocols for people that haven't joined us before. Um, we have a, a very brief agenda. Uh, we take a few minutes to explain what's, what's going on and how, how you guys can get engaged in the conversation. Uh, we really do like this to be a super friendly, super um, uh, engaging chat, so feel free to, to speak up when um, when I call your name. Um, we're going to have Mickey and Shana do um, a short introduction and explain a little bit of their background and, and their perspectives, and then we're going to open it up for questions and discussion. And so the way that you can get involved in, in asking questions is by accessing the Google Doc that we have available that's shared with everybody on the call. And uh, you can take notes in there, you can add resources, you can jump in case studies if you have examples of, of projects or experiences that you'd like to share. Uh, and with anything, if you put your name at the end of, of the, whatever you're typing, then I'll be able to reach out and uh, ask you to take yourself off mute and uh, ask your question and, and get involved in the conversation. Um, so uh, we'll do that for about half an hour and then we'll finish up with some hot tips from Mickey and Shana about uh, some action that, that everyone can get started with in their communities as soon as they get off the call. So uh, if that makes sense, everyone, um, I think I may have forgotten to introduce myself. My name is getting the call today. Uh, and it gives me great pleasure to hand over to Mickey to introduce herself. Hey there. Sorry, I was having some trouble getting off mute. Uh, can everybody hear me? Yep. Yeah. Okay, good. My name is Mickey Langston. Thank you. And uh, as, as was mentioned, I am the Executive Director of the Mile High Business Alliance. We're based in Denver, and we started the organization in 2007 with a mission to help nurture a more connected, resilient, and healthy local economy. And at the time that we started the organization and began talking about a healthy economy and what that looks like, people said, why are you even talking about this? There's nothing wrong with the economy. And um, it became very quickly evident uh, that there was actually a lot of things that aren't working about the economy. And uh, our work is really focused on strengthening the relationships between local business owners and the communities in which they work. Um, and, and that has so much to do for us with the health and well-being and long-term resiliency of a community. Um, when you look at how a community or how an economy is functioning, what are the ways in which businesses are operating, um, and the more connected we are to the long-term impacts of the way we operate our businesses, the way we leverage our resources, um, hopefully the more we can incorporate some of the other values that we hold in common beyond just profit-making into those economic structures and into those business models. And so our work here in Denver, um, we provide a lot of different programs and resources for small and local and emerging businesses. Um, and that includes everything from uh, a Buy Local Week campaign, which promotes holiday shopping uh, in November and December, to this last year we did a Small Business Week um, campaign and forum that brought together small businesses and entrepreneurs and the resources available in the community for them, um, even down to just having monthly meetings that really provide an opportunity for small businesses to come together 
and, and get connected, find out who else is in their community, what people are working on, and access more of those resources that they need in order to succeed. So um, really the, our focus, again, is on building those relationships and looking at how do we as a community create healthy economic development opportunities. And um, I'm, I'm engaged in a lot of conversations these days about the difference between traditional economic development and the kind of economic development that might build more resiliency into the community. Um, if you think about traditional economic development, it, it has become basically cities and uh, uh, community development organizations working to seduce large corporations to come into their community to create jobs. And what's unfortunate about that is um, really two things. One, that means we're stealing jobs from other communities, and there's not necessarily a net gain of jobs. Sometimes there are, but sometimes there really aren't. Um, and the second thing is, even if we're successful at seducing those companies, it doesn't take that much time before another community provides a better offer. And that business has no... If they don't have any roots in the community, they're much more likely to pick up and move somewhere else. So um, I'm sure part of the reason why all of us are on this call today is because we're interested in, you know, instead of just that traditional way of approaching economic development, what can we do that isn't just a race to the bottom? Um, and there are interesting models that have been being developed by various communities, um, including a term you may have heard of, economic gardening, which is about using traditional economic development um, offices and incentives, but instead of looking at big companies, looking at who are the small emergent companies in our community and how can we leverage those resources in order to support them and strengthen them. Um, so how can our local businesses work together with larger companies? Sorry, I'm looking at the awesome questions that are being typed into the Google Doc. <laughs> and uh, Everyone, I'll, I'll you're, say, you're inspiring people already. So uh, <laughs> Exactly. So uh, I actually do, I was just speaking this morning at a conference here in Durango about local food systems, and one of the ideas uh, or examples that came to mind in terms of a collaborative economy versus a competitive economy, um, Chipotle, which I, many of you may be familiar with, uh, is a fast-service um, burrito restaurant that started actually here in Colorado. They're based here. And they, when they divested themselves of McDonald's ownership a couple of years ago, they decided to really take on healthier food products as part of their business. And so they um, are a fairly large company. They're publicly traded. They have 1,500 locations across the United States, and they approached various uh, chicken producers and said, we want healthier chicken. We want chicken that doesn't have antibiotics, that hasn't, you know, you haven't given it growth hormones, and we need this part of the chicken. And we happen to need a different part of the chicken than Panera Bread, who's also interested in sourcing healthier chicken. So they actually um, approached Tyson Foods, and Tyson Foods created a whole other division of their um, business um, to service the chicken requirements of Chipotle and Panera Bread. Um, for us, that's one example of creating collaborative opportunities to leverage better um, economic choices, something that makes sense for those businesses but also supports their values. Um, and leading off on that, one problem that Chipotle is having is they are trying to source healthier beef. And although they can find ranchers in Colorado and in the West who are raising healthier cattle, the, the capacity of the community to be able to produce that product um, doesn't fit their requirements. And what I mean is, even if you're growing healthy healthy cows who are eating grass and hanging out in the sunshine, we still send those cattle to centralized beef processing facilities where you really lose track of which cow came from which part of the country. And so they're unable to make sure that the um, source of that beef is from where they're wanting to support it from. So for us, that's a really important economic opportunity for small-scale producers to work with these larger companies that have a higher demand that have a built-in market. You have 1,500 stores that are, you know, wanting healthier food choices, um, but there are some missing components. And um, this would be an awesome opportunity for 
you know, a set of entrepreneurs who wanted to make those connections and provide that processing capacity um, of healthier beef directly to someone like Chipotle. So I don't know how much time I've taken up already, but uh, that's a little bit about the work that we do, and uh, I'll be very happy to participate in more questions and answers as we continue in the call. Thanks, Nikki. That was actually really awesome. I I learned something already that I am really fascinated about now. Um, that um, that was a really great overview, and and thanks for diving in um, into some of those anecdotes so early. Um, Hopefully, it sounds like you've got more and more and more of those, and I can't wait to hear more of them. Um, Shana, do you want to give us a quick intro about the work that you're doing? Sure. Thank you. Uh, my name is Shana Ratner, and I'm the principal of Yellowwood Associates, and we are, among other things, uh, the managing grantee for the Ford Foundation's initiative called Wealth Creation in Rural Communities, and Ford has focused its work in three of the highest poverty rural areas in the United States, which are Central Appalachia, the South, and the Lower Rio Grande Valley in Texas. Uh, and we are working with grantees on the ground there to build wealth creation value chains. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what that means and the role of entrepreneurs in those value chains. Uh, we are also, Yellowwood is also uh, a small consulting firm, and we have done over the years a lot of work with clients who are interested in entrepreneurial development. So um, that's some of the background that, that I'm bringing to this. Uh, in terms of uh, a little bit about wealth creation, when we talk about wealth in the Ford context, we're talking about seven forms of wealth. So we're not just talking about financial wealth. And I won't take the time to go into all of them now, but if you'd like to learn more about the seven forms of wealth and about the wealth creation approach, I would direct you to go to www creatingruralwealth.org, and I've, I've typed that in so that resource will go around to everyone on the call. Uh, the wealth creation approach gets brought to the ground through what we call wealth creation value chains, and in our uh, approach, a value chain is a business model based on shared economic, social, and environmental values in which buyers, processors, producers, and others work together for mutual benefit to create value in response to market demand. So the example that Mickey just gave of Chipotle um, is, is in part a value chain example. Um, the most important part of that definition in the work that we're doing on the ground is the notion of market demand. Most of the groups that we work with have always used a supply-based approach to development where they've said this is what we've got, this is what we can make, let's make it and push it out into the market. And what we're saying is that there's really that's really not a useful approach to engender investment in underutilized resources, it's not a winning approach in terms of sustainability and being able to actually respond nimbly to changes in market demand. That a better approach is to get to know the demand side of your market on a personal basis, understand what they're looking for, and understand what you can do to meet their needs uh, to, to serve the values that are in demand uh, as well as the goods and services from their customers. So the kinds of things that we find that people on the demand side of the market are quite concerned about are things like security of supply. Are there, is there actually going to be enough product, enough service, enough clean water uh, to go uh, for the next year and the next year, enough energy? They're concerned about transparency. They want to know where uh, their goods and services are coming from, who's involved in their creation, uh, and where, you know, where they've been. So exactly the kind of problem that Mickey was pointing out with the cattle, where once they go to the slaughterhouse, you don't know whose cow is whose, um, that's a real issue, and uh, as value chains develop, transparency and being able to build that into them becomes key to meet many of the uh, the kinds of demand that are, that's emerging in our in today's today's economy. So, relating this back to entrepreneurs, most people who uh, and most programs that that um, are set up to support to support entrepreneurs are set up. Uh, to support entrepreneurs broadly. So all the businesses in the community, all the businesses in the region, uh, and to kind of give broad courses on entrepreneurship. The value chain approach is different in that way in the sense that what we're, what we're uh, experimenting with and, and learning about is what it looks like if you identify market demand and then build a value chain from the input suppliers to the producers to the processors to the distributors, et cetera, um, in, any, in a particular sector that will meet that demand, and when you do that and you begin to examine the gaps in that chain, uh, then you can begin to see where the entrepreneurial opportunities are to address those gaps. 
so that instead of looking at someone's as a as a you know someone's entrepreneurial activity in a vacuum as one business, you're looking at it in the context of a value chain. And the question is, um, how do you then support investment in businesses that actually promote not just the individual business but the benefit that benefit the entire value chain? And how do not how does that investment not only come from external sources but come from within the chain? So what are the investments that buyers can make in the chain that actually increases the capacity of the producers to provide that sustainable supply. Um, we're seeing those kinds of investments made nationally and a great deal on an international basis as well. Uh, and so that leads to a model called inclusive business. It's actually uh, called various different things. Another, uh, another resource I would suggest is a book called Social Innovation by a man named Jason Saul um, that speaks about businesses structuring their the way they do business in such a way that they benefit uh, rural areas and and uh, and people who uh, who are living in poverty, which is really Ford's again Ford's concern. Um, someone's asking for a real live example of this at work. Let me give you an example from uh, Central Appalachia. One of the value chains that's being built is around energy efficiency uh, for low-income households, and one of the first problems was that low-income households don't have a lot of dollars to spend on energy efficiency. So the first challenge was to really come up with a structure that would generate and create demand. And the value chain, the group that is, in fact, what we call a value chain intermediary, that is the group that's building the value chain and exploring it, found a process called on-bill financing. And they got four electric cooperatives in their area to adopt on-bill financing. They put it through the legislature. And that allowed uh, the people who, people, low-income people in those, uh, who are customers of those utilities to sign up and get weatherization work done on their house that would be paid off over time, um, and the value would run with the house, not with the, not with the individual. So uh, in the meantime, that's one part. That's the demand part of the value chain. At the same time, they're training the utilities in how to do energy assessments. They're training workers in how to do the weatherization. They're bringing entrepreneurial businesses, um, starting entrepreneurial businesses that can address that growing demand, uh, and, uh, and they are uh, offering... Uh, those, uh, connecting those businesses also with renewable energy technologies and bringing those technologies to bear on grocery stores in rural areas, which are some of the primary institutions um, required to keep the life of the community going. So um, that's one example. There are, are quite a few others. And uh, these are not, again, to address another question I see here, these are not necessarily about large-scale operations. There may be uh, we're interested in, in the board work in bringing, this, bringing these value chains to a regional scale, so we're talking about relatively large-scale demand, but the people who begin to supply that demand are not necessarily large-scale at all. We have a, the Central Appalachian Network is working with very, very small growers in a variety of different agricultural value chains uh, at the sub-regional level and looking to knit them together at the regional level. So uh, similarly, the Rural Action is working with a number of forest uh, products producers, not not all of whom are large at all, to weave them together. I will say that value chains, when they're successful, uh, generally involve an ecology of producers. So they're not all small, they're not all large. Um, it's a mixed group, and uh, part of our a part of the approach has to do with recognizing the importance of bringing uh, people of very limited means into the mainstream uh, and and helping them form relationships with and ultimately work shoulder to shoulder with with people who are uh, who have less limited means. So uh, it's a it's a mixed ecology. It's not a uh, strictly for small business, nor of course is it strictly for large business. So what I'm hearing both of you talk about when you're uh, Shana, you're talking about an ecology, and and Mickey, you are talking about a collaborative ecosystem. Um, it seems like one of the critical components of, of these systems operating and functioning properly is the ability to get businesses and local communities actually engaged in the process. Do you want to talk a little about how that happens? How, you know, is there someone that takes the first step? What, what is the kind of process of, of bringing people along and, and, um, and creating, and this speaks to one of the questions, creating a collaborative environment rather than a competitive one? Let, let me let me see um, if I can address that from my perspective, and then Nikki, uh, I'll be interested to hear what you have to say as well. I'm going to uh, speak to the wood products value chain that's being created in Central Appalachia. There, the first step really 
for the group that's doing the work is to identify where does the demand come from and what is the demand for. And it turns out that because of the growth in LEED certified buildings, there's a fair amount of demand for FSC certified wood. However, there's very little FSC certified um, wood in Appalachia. So there's an issue of developing that base as well as um, developing uh, and negotiating around the use of other forms of certified wood um, in the value chain. So one of the things they're doing is setting up a certification center that will uh, will work with low-wealth landowners who have forest land and can benefit a great deal from increasing the value of that resource through certification. At the same time, they're, they've reached out to identify businesses throughout the region that have products and services that are in demand in the marketplace, and they're figuring out how to bring those businesses together to develop the, the quality, quantity, and um, and flow of product and service that's needed to satisfy the market in a way that will ultimately be collaborative. So, um, you know, you're, they're ultimately going to have trucks on the road that are carrying mixed product, mixed batches of product from different businesses, and the businesses will benefit from having from sharing the transportation costs, from sharing the access to the bids on their on, you know, on their product. Because when a when a project goes out for bid, they're not necessarily looking just for flooring; they're looking for all the wood products required to complete a development or complete a renovation or complete a project. And the uh, the broker that can put all those products together that are certified and that are uh, where their origins are are, uh, are clear and transparent uh, and deliver them on time and make sure that they're properly packaged and that they're reasonably priced um, is, the, is the one that's going to get the business. So uh, the very fact of value chain development creates collaboration among businesses throughout the chain because they're better off together. And so it's not a question of bringing them together to understand that it's a good idea to collaborate as much as it is helping them understand how a business op- how collaborating to get a capture business opportunity will allow them to do what they can't do by themselves. That's a, a great insight. Mickey, do you uh, do you have a similar perspective? Well, I think I'm, I'm going to get a little bit more philosophical uh, and then speak a little bit more practically about our experience in um, building those relationships. Generally speaking, there's a lot of myths about uh, how people in systems and business uh, in particular work. And one of those myths uh, is that the strongest will survive, and therefore what that means is that you have to kill everything else off in order to be able to succeed. And uh, I think that idea that we, a lot of us share culturally, is doing us a big disservice. Um, when we actually look at what makes for a healthy ecosystem, uh, there's a lot of collaboration and partnership and um, things that happen between species and components of the system. And when it comes to business and community, a lot of what we've been doing is sharing this idea of we we actually do better and we thrive as a community when we do work together and everyone is able to participate in the system. Unfortunately, the, the truth is we're still operating inside of a scarcity-based um, economic system where even if you believe in collaboration and you understand that when your neighbor is doing well, you do well, uh, we're still competing for scarce monetary resources. So fundamentally, we believe that uh, changing those systems to create sufficiency instead of scarcity, uh, artificial scarcity, in fact, is going to be one of the most important steps that we take to change how our economics and our communities work. Um, practically, what that means for us right now is we're still operating inside of, a, of a, inside of an artificially scarce system that um, is very entrenched and has a lot of momentum behind it. So for us to still have that as the primary economic model but then build collaboration despite it <laughs> requires uh, really strong relationship building. And it's my experience that while people are messy and that's not the easiest thing in the world to do, if you get a group of people in the same room and actually start talking about the things that you hold in common and the values that you share instead of the differences between your political ideologies and uh, um, uh, your opinions about exactly the right way of being able to get it done, you're very quickly able to get to a shared context or vision of what that community might hold in common. So, for example, in Denver, um, we you really don't have to tell a local business owner why their relationships are important because business owners understand that if they don't have good relationships with their employees, with their vendors, 
with their neighbors in the community and with their customers, they don't have a business to stand on. Um, and for us, while that's a very intuitive um, and intrinsic knowledge that a lot of business owners have, it's not the primary conversation about business or success. So part of the role we're playing is actually bringing that conversation to the forefront and talking about the relationship between um, a local business owner and the community and the mutual benefit that is available when we're working together. Um, and going back to one of the questions about what are other examples besides food systems or something that's on a smaller scale, um, local businesses, this is one of the reasons we work with them, is because they often work with each other more often because they have those relationships that have been built in. Um, we work with a local brewery. Colorado has lots of beer makers, um, and one of them, Great Divide Brewing Company, they work with a local uh, coffee roaster, and they've been doing this since before we came along. We just get to tell the story. Um, they work with a lo- local coffee roaster for their chocolate Yeti stout that they brew seasonally, um, and then there's a restaurateur that owns two really great vegetarian restaurants in Denver, sources from both um, the coffee roaster of Pablo's and from Great Divide. And the three of them have a great relationship. And when there are opportunities for their business that come up, they work together. So it's, we're talking about, you know, three businesses that have relationships with other businesses. And when you start looking at those webs of connection, that helps us identify those opportunities for collaboration. Um, and as people start working together and recognizing, hey, when Craig from Pablo's is doing well in his business, that means I have access to coffee that I like from a local provider that I can trust, and that's good for my business. And therefore, I'm not just going to be promoting what I'm doing, but I'm going to be promoting what he's doing. And that's true in, in cross-industry examples like that, but also in similar industries. So there are um, there's a campaign that's been um, promoted by a few independent bookstores about independent bookstores, and they recognize that they're not actually competing with each other. They're competing with Amazon and with, um, I mean, it used to be Borders and Barnes and & Noble, and now it's really Amazon. So they're trying to figure out how do we distinguish ourselves as independent bookstores and collaboratively work together to promote the value of an independent bookstore in your community beyond just what's available via Amazon. So um, a little more philosophical, but until we change the some of those systems that make us feel like we have to compete in order to survive, then... Um, it's, it's, we're going to have to work to transcend. transcend that. That, uh, I think that was a really great addition to Shana's um, original point uh, and gave a really nice perspective um, to, to both sides of that. There's a, a great question in here, which I think is a nice follow-up. Um, you haven't put your name down, so I'm going to read it out for you, but if it is you, feel free to jump off mute and, um, and expand on this. What role do consumers or governments everyone other than business play in creating that collaborative environment uh, or ecosystem. So we've talked we've talked businesses, um, but is there a, is there a space here for the consumer and for the government? There absolutely is. Um, and I, I was actually, I'm glad you brought that question up because that's the one that I was looking to, to try to respond to. And, and in again, within the context of the wealth creation approach, we talk about the value chain partners, which are the people engaged in actually producing the good or service in the value chain. And then we talk about the value chain supporters. And so government, consumers, uh, researchers, media, there are many different groups that can play a supportive role in developing a value chain and in supporting a value chain in order to create seven forms of wealth. And again, um, if no single organization can create seven forms of wealth uh, by themselves. They need partners to do it. And what we're trying to do is create value chains that actually uh, provide those seven forms, so things like uh, natural capital, unimpaired natural resources, and uh, skills and human health and ideas and creativity and buildings that function. Um, so these are all things that... that uh, that the value chains, our value chains, need to be contributing to building without undermining any one of them to build any other one. And uh, it takes lots of lots of different uh, types of support to allow that to happen, and people have to see it in their self-interest. So that's the other piece of this that's really key, is we're not talking about uh, charity or philanthropic investment nearly as much as we're talking about market-driven investment by people who see it in their best interest to have these value chains be fully functional. Uh, 
And so that's that's really the hook, and that's those are the kinds of roles. So, for example, uh, a government can decide that they want to purchase product from a value chain. They can be an, an anchor buyer, and that's one way they can support it. They can also support it through policy uh, development. In other words, uh, the uh, if, if you are training, a uh, government could train building inspectors to look specifically at systems related to energy efficiency in buildings. And if they have the wherewithal to do that, and they can then write them up in such a way that appraisers can value them appropriately. Um, that can be a very important component of a value chain. Uh, consumers can be co-producers. So if consumers say, we want a product that's built to a certain point, and then we want to be able to put our own spin on it, but we want to know we're using local materials, consumer demand can translate into shaping what goes what goes into that value chain and the kind of thing that comes out the other side. Um, and just, Donna, just, do you have any examples of that? Um, sure, co-development? Uh, sure, composting is one. So there are many people now compost in their backyard. That's a co-production activity, right? The, they buy a compost bin or maybe they don't use one compost bin, they use their own pile. But they're actually becoming both consumers of product and then producers of compost out of that waste. Uh, and in some cases, they are they may be you know bringing their waste to a compost facility, or they may be uh, uh, working in other ways as to basically co-produce that that product. But uh, when consumers um, look take material that is uh, building material, for example, and they uh, they put their own finishes on it. They may say, we want, uh, we want material that will respond well to non-toxic finishes, and we want it prepared for that because we're going to do the finishing ourselves. So, again, it's providing a, a product that's going into a market where producers become, uh, consumers, rather, become co-producers of the final product. Yeah, great. Um, Nikki, did you want to add a, a, a comment to this? I, I would. Um, all, all of this stuff is so great. So, for us, if we are looking at how do we as a community build, um, really build and, and co-invest in things that we really value, um, and especially economically, um, for, for us, an economy isn't just about um, buying and selling things and uh, the consumer price index and the GDP. Those are some ways of measuring some activities that are part of an economy, but we really like to take a step back and look at what is the fundamental function of an economy, um, which really is about all of the activities we engage in that provide for our needs. And if, if and when we start as people in communities relating to those activities and all of the components of our community as something that is part of our life and that we're not just consumers that are sitting around waiting to be entertained and fed and um, made to feel better about ourselves. And that, you know, coming out of that culture of mass consumerism and looking more at how do I participate as an individual in creating a community I love and how does that translate into every component of our community, including, you know, are our kids getting a good education and do they have access to healthy food and health care when they need it and how are we relating to our old people and making sure that we're taking care of them that transition from being a consumer to now being a contributor in, an, in the economy and in the community to us is a fundamental shift. So it's whatever it is that you're participating in, in your communities, looking at how do I strengthen this? Where can we be sourcing the goods and services that we're using from people that we trust in our community that we want to support? Because if you want a good community and a healthy food system, you have to stop shopping at places that are not providing that. You have to look at where is your money being invested. And instead of putting my money into a national bank that's gambling everything on Wall Street and losing my community's capacity to make things happen, where can I put my money that is actually making a bigger difference? And those individual choices, while they may not seem like a thing that's going to change the world, um, collectively the buying power and the decision-making power of people in the community can be really huge. Um, so in terms of individuals, that, that's something I would say. And then for governments, uh, I think, you know, all of the things <laughs> that um, Shanna were just saying about policy is really important. If businesses, or I'm sorry, if governments really want to create healthy, strong businesses, 
they have to stop chasing after big corporations with the idea that that's going to be the saving grace for their communities. Um, right now, state, local, and federal governments have been giving $60 billion of incentives to big corporations every year. And that, that, that's just in, that's insane to be spending tax revenue and to be deferring tax revenue and to be giving away community um, land trusts to companies that don't have uh, the same kind of connection that a local business or a local entrepreneur might end up having. And it's not that one is evil and one isn't. It's what is going to create the, the best opportunities for this community over the long term. So changing some of those economic development policies and initiatives um, and also making sure um, that the way we're using our land and resources, the community says we want for small-scale producers to be able to sell stuff you know, in our neighborhood how do we make that happen? That takes the alignment of uh, not just the business community, but also um, government and policymakers. So that actually that brings us to quite uh, a robust discussion that's happening right now on uh, on the Google Docs. But I'd love to get some of the people that are taking notes down here to, to pipe up and take yourself off mute and and uh, let's bring this conversation onto the call. This started with a question about pop-up stores. So we're talking, um, we're talking about crafters. We're talking about taking opportunity, taking advantage of, of uh, vacant space on Main Street and creating temporary stores that are sourced by local individuals. So it really kind of speaks to what you've both been talking about around the co-producing component. Is there someone on the call that would like to speak to this discussion that's been going on there? Feel free to speak up. Uh, I know that there's quite a few people there that seem to have quite a lot of experience. Um, in the meantime, Shana, it looks like you've also had a bunch of experience doing work around pop-up stores. Yeah, actually, it, uh, when I first read that comment, I thought, gee, I don't know anything about this. And then I thought, oh, no, actually I do. The, I serve on the board of a group called Opportunities Credit Union in Wisconsin, Vermont. It's Vermont-only development credit union, so the focus of the credit union is on working with unbanked and, and uh, low-wealth and low-income individuals and bringing them into the constructively into the banking system. And uh, Winooski, downtown Winooski, has a lot of empty storefronts. Um, it's been recently redeveloped, but it's been, there, there's a fairly high vacancy rate among the, in the commercial property around the, the circle downtown. So Opportunities got together with a bunch of other folks and developed a pop-up gallery that was up for, I would say, a month. Um, in June and July, I believe it was, over the 4th of July and then maybe toward, to, to, toward the end of the month. I think it started at the end of June. Uh, and they brought artists and crafters in from around the area uh, and they introduced them to the Small Business Development Center, I believe it was, that worked with them and helped each of those artists make business plans. They had a jury selecting work. Um, they had volunteers hanging in the work. Uh, they had uh, the restaurants, local restaurants, contributing food for the opening night. It was a gala night. They had the governor come and uh, a number of other notaries come and, uh, and participate in the festivities. And the very first night that the galleries were open, every single artist, and there were, I think, 50 to 60 artists represented, sold at least one work. It was kind of a remarkable. Uh, and then it stayed up for over a month. So it was it was a lot of fun. It was really successful. And my understanding at this point is that at least one of those spaces now is being considered as a permanent gallery space. The hope was that the pop-up gallery would lead to uh, people moving into those spaces and and you know and, and bringing their business business downtown into downtown Winooski. So I can tell you about that. And I would say if you're for the person who's interested, if you contact Opportunities Credit Union and ask to speak to Jody. Uh, and say that, you know, you, you feel free to use my name. Um, I imagine that she would be happy to, to tell you a little bit about what they did and how they did it. They had lots of lots of partners, and, and uh, it was a lot of work, but it was a, a big success. I'm sorry, could you repeat the, the credit union name? Sure, it's Opportunities Credit Union in, in Winooski, okay. Vermont. Thank you. Sure. And, Rebecca, it sounds, sounds like you've got an example from Fitifit, and we want to talk about yeah, this is Rebecca from Orton. I don't know much about this. I wonder if someone from Biddeford even happens to be on the call, but we have a, a Heart and Soul Community Planning Project in Biddeford, and they've done some amazing work there trying to engage their teenagers and to revitalize the downtown and draw more people there. And I know they have a project coming up for this winter 
trying to connect all of that to the idea of pop-ups. So they're helping to match high school students with downtown store owners. They give the high school students the opportunity to create a pop-up business in an existing downtown store for, I believe, about a month before the holidays. And the student also gets a little bit of mentorship support from that business owner. So they can explore the idea of running a business, creating one, but very little risk and the opportunity to add some life and energy to downtown as well. Uh, I can, I, personally, I can speak from that example uh, with some work that we're involved with in Washington, D.C., where we run a, a large festival called Digital Capital Week. And we have a program of, of community projects which are created by the community that activate the, the district over a week where we have a platform available for, for people from the community to come in and, and create a project brief and advertise for additional resources and volunteers and, um, and continues to host events and activities. And um, Last year there was a, a pop-up incubator that was created that was used as a base for really exciting walks around the neighborhood and um, training for young people and um, all sorts of different stuff. Um, and Becca, it sounds like the, what you just kind of touched on there around this idea of creating a space for experimentation that will risk is one of the best things that pop-up stores allow people to do. They allow people to try things without being too concerned about um, the long-term sustainability, so it lets people be a bit more experimental and innovative. Um, really does set up that way of uh, giving people an opportunity to experiment with tiny things. Nikki, did you, did you have a comment or have you had some experience in, in any kind of pop-up retail and, and how that fits into the border ecosystem? Yeah. Um, I was actually just putting into the document. Um, I Heart Denver is a project that got started last year. Um, it, it used to be called something else and then they rebranded it. Um, we've worked with them some, but I'm much more familiar with how it's gone because of our uh, partnership with one of their founding board members um, that has worked with us on some other projects. And I think it's going fairly well. I mean, it's been a year, and they're still in operation, and they work with um, lots of local artists and have definitely begun creating a brand that people are recognizing. Um, I would say that Obviously, partnerships are extremely important in making that happen. Um, something that really works about them is that they're very sexy. They're clear about who they're appealing to, which are um, generally younger people that are interested in something that's cool and unique and interesting. And so their marketing is really reflective of that. I would make sure that you're, you know, if you're a community organizer that says, we have empty spots and we have artists that want to be doing stuff, but you're not a graphic designer who really gets sexy branding and effective marketing and that kind of thing, that you find those people who can make that happen. Um, when we, and just going off of that, when we started the Business Alliance, um, we, we, we really started with no funding. I mean, we weren't granted some amount of money to get going. We had to um, recruit all of the participation and the resources that we needed to build our organization and our local first campaigns. And working in trade with uh, partners in the community who saw the importance of what we were doing was absolutely vital for us being successful. So not only are, should you, in looking at a pop-up store, look at what are the partnerships with landowners or property owners, but you know what are the marketing opportunities where we can be co-branding with other organizations? Um, how can we give some uh, support to local media organizations in exchange for some marketing and branding? So those are always things that I think community organizers and even business owners don't necessarily look at. How can we share value, whether or not we have the money to pay for this? Let's talk about what we're trying to accomplish and how we can share that value with each other. That's a really great point. So I think uh, if we're looking, and I'm looking at a couple of people who are starting to write some more notes in here. I'm sure a lot of people have had experience with public growth in there. Um, feel free to jump on and, and let us know what you've experienced. Claudia, um, we're having trouble hearing you. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that better? Yeah, thanks. All righty. Um, so it sounds like uh, we keep coming back to this um, 
this concept of, of building collaboration and um, finding and understanding the needs of people that are working together and finding ways to satisfy those needs collectively. Um, as we kind of roll into the, the end of the call here, I'd love to, to hear your thoughts, Shana and, and Mickey, and anyone else that, that would like to dive in um, on some of the best ways to, to do that. So have you seen examples of some really great um, campaigns that have been run? Do you um, Have you seen people use technology in an interesting way to make this happen? Um, what are the, the kind of practical tools and tricks of the trade that, that people could start thinking about to start building some of this collaboration in their communities? I would, I would say that the practical tricks of the trade are not really tricks at all. They're having a clear connection to the demand side of the market and understanding what the demand side of the market needs. Let me give you an example. There, are, uh, there was a group of people in, uh, in the South. We were working with um, some very low-income farmers. They were growing peas. They wanted to be able to get the peas into the schools. The schools wanted the peas. They wouldn't take them unless they were shelled. The cooperative extension person who was involved said these farmers will never work together. They've never been willing to work together, you know, in all the time that that extension agent has been working with them. There's no way that they're going to work together now. As soon as there was a clear market demand and they could see um, where their where their interests came together, they went together and they purchased a pea shell. It was a, a pretty simple piece of equipment. It was a piece of equipment that could be readily shared among all the farmers. They used it, they shared it, they got the account, they were able to sell their piece to the school. Very straightforward. This is not hard. This is about really connecting. I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I, I take that back. It is hard, but it's not hard conceptually. It's hard to do sometimes, but if you really understand the, the market demand and you can make a connection between your businesses and the market, uh, then there are many ways in which joint investments, co-investments, community investments in value chains can help many, many people succeed at the same time who would not be able to succeed on their own. Uh, but people are not going to collaborate for the sake of collaboration. They're going to be collaborate when it's in their best interest to do so. And when they understand that their best interests are not just about profitability, but about being able to live out the values they care about. Hence the wealth creation concept. So uh, there's more to small business than making a profit. Many business people are also concerned about the environment. They're concerned about crime rates. They're concerned about education. They're concerned about the quality of life in, the, in their place. And, and so um, if you can show them how to do business in such a way that contributes in a positive way to, to a wide range of things that they care about, um, if they can do it and it's good for them and they can survive as a business, they're, gonna, they're likely to do it. Um, if it doesn't make sense, it's going to put them out of business, then they're not going to do it. So, so Shanna, uh, that's important. It sounds like, it sounds like when you, you're saying a lot of uh, points around how people need to be shown or people need to be have things explained, is there a, a critical role here for a, a facilitator or a, absolutely. Uh, a bridge builder? There really is, and thanks for bringing that up. There absolutely is, and I think that you know, in our in our work, we're focusing a lot on how to develop, assist, and develop training materials and approaches and coaching for these groups that we're calling value chain intermediaries that are not by and large individuals. They're by and large organizations, nonprofit organizations with a certain amount of capacity and the willingness um, to build more capacity to do this kind of work, and they're all working in very, very new ways. They're not used to thinking about development through this kind of an approach. Um, so their, their role is critical. Their role is critical in conceiving these value chains, in keeping that conception alive, uh, in building the relationships between the partners and the partners and the support organizations, in building the relationships with demand, the demand side of the market. Uh, and then in some cases, they actually take a role in the value chain itself, depending on what's needed. So, for example, in the wood products example I was talking about, the nonprofit is acting as the broker. Now, they won't do that indefinitely, but they're doing it because there's no one else to play that role right now. Eventually, when the chain is successful, that will spin off as its own enterprise. But, uh, but it absolutely requires someone to be someone, some group uh, with some significant capacity to, to uh to think it and, and do it. That's great. And uh, Mickey, any uh, any tools, tricks, campaigns that you've seen that work really well? Uh, any kind of great examples that you can share? Um, tools and tips for promoting entrepreneurship or for 
for building these kind of collaborative ecosystems yeah. for um yeah, for really kind of fostering local entrepreneurs. I mean I think, you know, we're we're speaking with people that are, are doing a lot of community based work and that um may have experience in asset mapping and in um looking at those opportunities and for me you know, I can't say what is the right fit for every community or uh, every um, economy, but asking asking the right questions is, I think, a really important place to start of what is it that we really need as a community and how do we fulfill on that? What are the resources that are available to us? And um, putting aside the problem of we don't have money to fund it, because inevitably that will always stop um, ideas from flowing and partnerships from happening is because of that particular limited resource. And if you start having a conversation of well, what do we have access to and how do we make those connections happen, then I think it's a it's a healthy place to look at any problem that we're looking at, whether it's you know, we need more jobs in this community, how do we do that, or food, how do we make that happen, or we still have homeless people even though we have a bunch of empty houses, so how do we make, how do we make that, those connections happen um, and enable that as a community, and the more success that we have in making successful connections where needs are met and people are able to participate in something in a healthy way, then the more we build that muscle as community members to say, all right, we're going to set aside this problem that we don't have enough money to make this happen. How do we how do we approach this from a more creative perspective? And um, I think that will help uncover a lot of other capacities and oftentimes even um, money and resources that maybe we weren't able to bring to the table. Fantastic. So um, I'm hearing. Uh, Asking the right questions, I'm hearing find a, a great facilitator or some kind of organization that can act as an intermediary. Um, it sounds like based on uh, from, from earlier in the call, finding finding the businesses that really understand the demand is also a critical piece, um, and then creating a, a, a safe space for experimentation and collaboration are some of the critical pieces. Does that sound right? I would say that there's. I think those those do sound sound good. I think there's another piece that communities can do, and that is, uh, with, specifically with regard to entrepreneurs, is, is to um, develop community coaching capacity. Uh, there are some communities, particularly rural communities, that have worked through a process called hometown competitiveness. And if you look down below, there's some resources for the Center for Rural Entrepreneurship that's used this model. Uh, the energizing entrepreneurs work, and a lot of that has to do with having coaches in small communities that work with entrepreneurs, help them understand what their options are and develop the sets of skills that they need to be able to take advantage of those options. So uh, that's a very kind of a, a, a local solution that doesn't necessarily require a large organization, uh, and it's something a community can do. A community can get together and, and choose to fund a, a community coach for entrepreneurs. Yeah, that's fantastic. So uh, really kind of learning from within and, and floating all boats is, is, seems to be the theme of what I'm hearing today. Um, before we wrap up, um, we always like to finish the call today uh, with a way that, um, that people can, can go out and try and do something in their community right after this call or first thing tomorrow morning. Um, would you mind, uh, Shana and Mickey, both uh, giving us maybe three things each that, that people could could really get started doing, if it's uh, research or if it's action? What are the what are the top three things that people should be doing tomorrow? Shana, why don't you yeah, take I would say that's a, that's a really a tough one because I don't know who is on the call, and, and there are many things that I might say that people will say, well, you know, we did that 10 years ago or we, we just finished doing that. So it's, it's really a tough thing, I think, to respond to. But I would say that, you know, one thing is if you're interested in learning more about the wealth creation approach, you can go to the website, the two websites that are up here, uh, Creating Rural Wealth and Yellowwood.org on wealth creation. And there's a lot of material there to think about and absorb that will give you much more than I can on this call about that approach. Um, I would say if you're looking to um, support 
support entrepreneurs, you really want to begin to talk to them. You really need to talk to the people in your community who, who are doing, in business and who have business ideas and find out uh, you know, what's on their mind, where they're, what their goals are, where they're trying to go, what markets they're trying to connect to, and maybe you'll find that there are a cluster of people in, with similar interests, whether it's interest in renewable energy or interest in food or interest in uh, you know, robotics or whatever it might be, and then you can begin to figure out how to network them together. Business networks of people who are like-minded, both in terms of their sector and or in terms of their phase of entrepreneurial skill, so people who are just beginning and people who are in the middle and people who are, are further along get a great deal out of mixing with people at their skill level, particularly if there is a coach to help uh, help those conversations along. They can learn a lot from each other. Uh, and, you know, and that kind of facilitation can be invaluable in just in helping people understand what their options are. And I'm going to give you one example of an entrepreneurial coaching situation in which a bunch of new entrepreneurs were together talking and one person was complaining that they couldn't get a loan from the bank. They, were, they had a great, you know, uh, credit history and they owned their own house and they couldn't understand why the bank wouldn't just give them money. And all the other people in the room said, you know, it's the way it works at banks is you need to have collateral. And, and so this person was saying, they want me to take out a second mortgage on my house, and I'm so offended, I just can't even imagine. And everybody else in the room said, you know, that's just how it works. If you want financing from a bank, you have to have collateral. It doesn't matter that you have a great credit rating. They're not going to give you money with nothing, with no collateral. Um, you know, kind of get over yourself. If you want the loan, go and do what the bank's telling you to do. And that and, and that was a big important piece of information for that person to have because they were all in a snit and they weren't going to take out any money to pursue their idea and they thought the bank was being unfair to them. So that even that simple kind of information transfer can make the difference between somebody who has the information that they need to, to decide if they're going to really take a, a risk and, you know, and doesn't. And, um, so it, it's, uh, it's the networking and the conversations between entrepreneurs can be incredibly useful. And I also wanted just briefly to pick up on the, converse, the, the comment that was made about don't just um, have a nonprofit community talk to itself. I couldn't agree more. I think that we have to start to stimulate much more effective conversation between all sectors, the nonprofit sector, the government sector, the philanthropic sector, and the business sector to get our communities where they want to be. Um, so you can bring together a group of representatives across those four sectors and start talking about the well-being of your community. You're going to be much better off than if you have that conversation in only one sector. Great stuff. All right, uh, Nikki, do you, uh, do you want to leave us with a couple of, couple of those who top three kind of next steps that people should be thinking about? Sure. So I would say, um, obviously, we're all coming from different places and we all participate in different things in our community, but we all, um, we all do have a certain level of economic power. And... Uh, if I could say just a couple of things that people could do that would foster entrepreneurship, the first would be, so no kidding, move your money to a locally owned financial institution or a credit union. Um, and that doesn't mean that you have to get less service or that it has to be inconvenient. Like do five minutes of research and find, a, you know, an institution that has a good reputation in your community that is convenient to where you are and just make the thing happen. Um, local banks and financial institutions actually do lend more often to small and local businesses than bigger banks and financial institutions. So that action alone helps create more um, economic opportunity for local entrepreneurs. Um, the second thing I would say is to take a look at what it is we do in our everyday life, whether it's the, you know where we buy our morning coffee from or what grocery store we go to or um, you know where we order office supplies for our business and start identifying uh, local alternatives that are still economically viable for you in your home and your business um, and directing more of those purchases toward local businesses because it actually does make a difference. Um, and then the third thing is when you're going out to eat to ask where the food came from and the more that conversation builds where restaurants understand that the people coming in are wanting local alternatives and that they might actually be able to source their milk and their protein and their vegetables from a local source and be able to have support from that from their customers, that helps to build that conversation capacity. So we're all coming from different places, but paying attention to where we're putting our money, where we're spending our money, and helping build the idea of um, local providers for the things that we need 
uh, goes a long way. And that is an absolutely spectacular point to uh, to wrap up the call. Thank you, Nikki, so much for um, for for closing us out on on something that's so inspiring and uh, really easy for people to get started to do. Um, I, on behalf of everyone on the call, I, I really want to thank Shana as well and uh, both of you for your time and really just sharing your wealth of experience and, and thoughts on how to foster local entrepreneurship. Um, to everyone on the call, we will make the podcast of this, of this last hour available on the communitymatters.org blog. There will also be a document available for download with all of the notes and everything that we've collected in the Google Doc today. Um, and so on behalf of everyone at Community Matters and the Horton Family Foundation, I would just like to say thank you very much and enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. You're very welcome.